Hello and welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. Our entire mission is to help you live on purpose, with purpose, and connect to the exact work that God has prepared for you and called for you to do. And I want to let everybody know out there that my book, you might have heard about it, it's coming out April 27th. It's called On Purpose, With Purpose, Discovering Your Best Life Now. And I would love for you to be a part of our launch team. We want to create a movement because here's, here's what I believe. You know, we all hear about the why, the what, and the how. But what is absolutely foundational, what has to precede being able to connect to that, including our purpose and everything else, our calling is who we are. Not who we see in the mirror, but who God made us to be. And this book is about that entire journey. We're getting incredible feedback. So here's what happens. I'll just make this quick. Join the launch team. You just go to beyondinfluence.com forward slash book. You're going to get a free copy, a digital copy of the book. It's normally $16.99 when it's going to be on Amazon. Uh, you're going to get access to some uh, some of my courses. We got some great surprises. Also, the only thing I'd like you to do as part of the launch team is just order a copy of the book, lead us a review, and share some of the stuff that we're going to be putting on social media. So we just want to make an impact out there. So please join the On Purpose With Purpose launch team. And as a part of that circle of champions, we got some other great stuff uh, in store for you. So with that, we are uh, we have a great episode for you coming up next. All right. Good day, everybody. Welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. And uh, it was interesting. I was just talking with Jonathan Raymond, who we're having on next. Well, first of all, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. It's been interesting, everybody out there. The amount of coaching clients that I have has picked up significantly. And as you guys know, with my book coming out, On Purpose, With Purpose, the work that we're doing is just expanding dramatically. Now, one of the things that I've observed on the teams, you know, everybody has worked so hard, so hard the last year, year and a half to get through this. And I've seen some organizations emerge stronger um, and some organizations emerge from this weaker because when we go through adversity and whether it's a pandemic or health challenges like I've had or economic downturns or whatever it is, there is no status quo. And in that, there's this opportunity for us to grow. But here's what I'm observing is some of the relationships, or many of them, I have not seen them improve the way that I'd hoped. These are from clients as I'm coming in to work with them, just hearing how things have happened over the last year. They're, think about this in your own environment. Is there somebody that you would love to either share something with how they what they do and how they interact and how that makes you feel. Now, we also have to recognize that could be our filters. We could be wrong, but having the conversation so we can get the relationship to a better place. So what do we do as leaders, somebody who has influence, and trust me, even if you're brand new, you have influence in your organization, to start laying a foundation where we actually build enough trust where we can start having feedback. And once that's there, what does it look like to even give and receive feedback? And once we get a little bit better on that, you know, with those people right around us, those our peers, our direct reports, whoever it happens to be our boss, what do we do then to start bringing that out into the organization? Jonathan, I don't know. Do you know Jane Cresswell? I don't. I got to talk to her last week. We spent an hour on the phone just talking. She was a computer programmer at IBM. And she was terrible at it. <laughs> and so she gets called in for her verse review. This is back in 1985. And she told her boss, hey, I don't, my passion isn't to be a programmer. It's actually to manage people. Now, this is a 21-year-old woman, you know, back then. But what she started doing, Jonathan, is they, well, they couldn't fire her. So she came into the team and started asking questions. She started doing everything she could do to facilitate better relationships, communications, better processes. And then she got moved to another team as a junior member. And that, and so the team she was on became the best performing in IBM. And they didn't see the correlation. They moved her to another team. That became the best performing. Hmm. What grew out of that, the entire IBM coaching culture, which is now part of their DNA, 
was headed up and started by Jane, but it started all the way back then. And I want to share to you all as you listen to this, no matter who you are, if you're a 21-year-old woman, brand new at a giant corporation, you could actually change the entire culture of where you work by just consistently making some small steps. Don't you think, Jonathan? Totally. I could and probably will share a few stories just like that of clients and some other moments where, where it actually surprised me to find out how limited or limiting most cultures are with respect to conversations and how challenged, you know, you talked about, you know, some of those relationships being frayed and strained. And in some ways it's, you know, these are things, some of the things we'll talk about are things people have been talking about for a long time, but that doesn't make them any easier to actually implement across a culture. So yeah. No, that's true. It's hard. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. Jonathan wrote a fantastic book. It's called Good Authority. And If you want to learn how to lead now and today and all the dynamics that are happening right now, it's all about becoming that leader that your team is waiting for. You know, said another way, hey, how would you like to be that leader that people love, that they love working Mm -hmm. for? They love showing up on Monday. You know, when we love going to a place, I actually think about, you know, what are the elements of that, right? I'm showing up because I know I'm going to have fun. I'm going to probably do something meaningful and I'm going to do it with friends. Yep. I mean, there's some elements of a culture that are missing, but uh, you were the head of E-Myth. If any of you guys have ever read the book E-Myth by Michael Garber, absolutely phenomenal book. And then you actually left that to start your own company, Refound. That's right. And we're going to hear the story because this is going to be inspiring to all the coaches out there. Jonathan's at home in his pajamas, hanging out with his wife, just gets back from surfing. He lives on the coast in California, and he asked to, gets asked to design this comprehensive leadership program for McKesson. And that was one of the starting points for his, not your move to greatness. How about this? Your first step into just, I think, accepting the greatness that was waiting for you. I, I kind of like that visual. But anyway... Yeah. You work with leaders all over the place, senior leaders, junior leaders, cultures, and you're also a coffee aficionado, which I can relate to, too. Yeah. Dad, you got girls. So let's dive in. First of all, interesting career, Jonathan. Share a little bit, just I think maybe kind of a little bit about your journey from, you know, maybe early on high school, college, which led you to today to the point where you realized, you know what, this is what I've been doing. So I got to write a book to help mm-hmm. other people lead differently. Yeah. I was, uh, I had a really close group of guy friends in high school and we, you know, we did everything together. We got together and played stickball after school every day. And I did fine academically. You know, I, I didn't peak until later when I went to law school. I was not a highly motivated high school student. Uh, let's say it that way. I was pretty disillusioned about the state of the world. I didn't, when I looked around at the community that I grew up in, which is a, you know, middle-class, upper-middle-class suburb in New York. I looked out at kind of the political world. I was an avid, you know, I used to read the newspaper all the time when I was a kid. And my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Weinblatt, we always had to do three current events every Monday morning, and we had to write a paragraph about them. And if you didn't do that, it multiplied by three. So then you had to do nine. One of my classmates had a couple hundred. He was uh, overdue for it. But uh, (laughs) I would say like the problem that I had, which really took me out in a big way much later in life was I really struggled with arrogance. I really struggled with thinking I was the smartest guy in the room and that I had all the answers and nobody had a clue, you know, why didn't they get it? Right. That was kind of like my personality. But what Uh, if you really are the smartest guy in the room, but nobody else (laughs) has realized it, Jonathan, how do you handle that? It's a problem. Yeah. It's it's tough. (laughs) So that kind of really kind of shaped my life and, you know, I, I went through, I bounced around a lot. I did a bunch of kind of business development things. I went to law school, which I loved actually. You know, a lot of people say, you know, practicing law can be a horror, which is true. But law school itself is amazing because you do, you really invest in your mind and developing a thinking process and a writing process and an analytical process. You learn how to see problems from multiple perspectives, which sounds easy maybe, but it's really not, right? To divorce emotion from a situation or a scenario to be able to see it from multiple angles. Now, if you spend your life divorcing emotion from it, it becomes a problem, which is why you have a lot of unhappy lawyers kind of later in their career is because you don't learn how to reintegrate emotion into your life. And so that's, you know, kind of where I was. And I, I bounced around. I did a lot of kind of personal growth work, spiritual work. I became really interested in 
divine, all things divine and forces bigger than myself and moved out to the West Coast. And then my current life really sort of started when I became the CEO of Emith back in 2011. And it was my first exposure to this industry from the leading and coaching industry, you know, very well established business had been around since the seventies, you know, hugely popular book that you for amazing book. And do you know when I, I, well, I had my accident, I was in the hospital for two years, 2011 to 13. And when I was getting out of the hospital, I can only work a few hours a week. And I decided to start a coaching practice. Mm. One of my mentors, a guy named Chris McCluskey, and I had never heard of the book, said, John, you have, if you're going to build a coaching business on your own, you have to read this book. And I'm telling everybody out there, if you have not read it, I don't care how big your organization is, it'll shift your mindset on how to look at what you do and why you do it and then how to do it. I'll just leave it at that. But it, I think it's yeah. an essential read for any entrepreneur. Totally. And you can pick it up for 12 cents on Amazon. You know, there's millions of copies out there. There are some ideas in there that, well, we'll just get into it. So that was a formative experience for me. That was my first real exposure. I had been a business development executive, you know, junior, junior leader, you know, kind of coming my, my way up in the career. That was a really sort of light bulb moment for me to see how much of it was about your mindset, right? And how much of it was about the way, the conditions that you created as a leader. And there, were, there was a lot to like in that world and that book, and it was a good business. But there was, a, from my perspective, we weren't going deep enough on the people leadership part, on the human part, on the how do you develop people? How do you give feedback? How do you create those culture conversations? And that's what really lit me up. And I said, that's why I left. Mm. Just I said, hey, that's what I really want to focus on. I want to focus on the human element inside of the business. And that's when I went out to create Refound. One of the frustrating things to me is everybody knows the what's and the why's and oftentimes even the outcomes, but how to do that. And the reason that I even wrote my whole book, I think the underlying thing behind doing that, any of that well, it's who you are as a person. And you have to look at that person in the mirror and say, you know what, is there a better version of myself? And in my case, the answer was, oh God, yeah. And it's so much better than who I am today. But I can literally take your best stuff on how to do all this. But if I'm flawed, my mindsets, my beliefs, maybe some of my emotional habits and triggers as I show up in certain situations at work, how I show up under stress and I'm not doing that well, I could take your best advice and apply it and not get close to the results that we're hoping to get. And 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 there's another thing, there's another thing at work, which I know is something that's important to you. It's important to me as well, that I don't think we talk enough about, which is the discipline to choose a path. Mm. And we fritter around a lot as a culture, right? We, we won from column A, won from column B. Oh, that idea is uncomfortable. Let me go over here. And we are really good at going to the next shiny object. And what I see very few leaders do is commit to a path. If that's refound and good authority, great. There's a bunch of them out there, but like find the one that resonates for you and stick with it because any path that is going to really get you to where you want to go, you're going to hit moments of discomfort. If you don't have the stomach to stay in and be like, ooh, you know, this part's uncomfortable or I feel like we covered this already. Give me something new. That's your mind trying to crave onto something new, trying to crave onto some sugar. Well, what you really need is protein, right? What you really need is to follow the process that you picked and go through those steps of discomfort. So if you go to, you know, most big companies, you see like a litter box, frankly, of, you know, 25 discarded leadership philosophies instead of a commitment to say, hey, this is the way we're going to do it here. And we're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to commit. And we're going to invest in training. And we're going to help people with the how. And very few organizations do that. And then people feel burned out. They're like, you know, someone announces a big new management training. They're like, oh, here we go again. Right, yeah, because you hit that idea. discomfort level stick. or it's kind of hard to implement. Like yep. I was just talking with a, you know, a, a team the other day and they said 100 people. But they're like, well, this one person – because what I, one of my mottos that I tell team is you teach what you tolerate. And if you're allowing somebody to be a little snarky and rude and a bit of a diva, and they immediately thought of this one person who is like three levels below everybody in this room, but she clearly, they were intimidated. Yep. How about this? Nobody wanted to approach her. So hmm. in that, they were, 
They're like, well, I don't know if making changes would work. That was their first got reaction. It. I got to tell you, Jonathan, I was surprised. And maybe we can even talk mm -hmm. about that. When you actually think about carrying it through that discomfort zone, and I think yeah. this feedback part is a big part of it. What are some of those things that we can do to stay with it and just keep making those small steps forward? But I think we also have to realize, this is what I shared with them is, listen, you have to decide what this company, what its people and what its culture looks like, you know, in two and three years from now as you go through this. And you have yep. to be okay that that means certain people that are here now, this might not be a good fit for them. And you need to yep. bring other people in, which then also means to really make things better is it needs to change. And change is not when, going to occur until the pain of staying the same exceeds that pain of going through the change. Indeed. All of us who, are, who do, you know, do this, we all love our clients, even though they can be a pain sometimes. Well, I'll share a story. One of my clients is Panasonic Energy, and they do... They make batteries for Tesla at the Gigafactory, among other things. So they're in the EV space, which is exploding, as we all know. And Alan Swan, who's their president, came from Rolls-Royce, came out from the you know, turbine world of Rolls-Royce, came over and we started a program for them back in early 2018. And we're still there today. And one of the things that he did was a game changer. This goes directly to this point. So we, had, we built a program for 400 managers and leaders across this organization. We broke that group of 400 into groups of 25 so that we could create a little bit more intimate learning environment and coaching environment. And we designed this with Alan, but he showed up at every single one of those kickoffs. And he said the same, you know, versions of the same story, which is, hey, everybody, this is a long-term project. It's going to feel clunky. You're going to hear some things that maybe you think you heard before, but I promise you we haven't done before, right? And all I'm asking for you is lean in, embrace that discomfort. We all have to do this, myself included. And one of the things that you can do as a leader is to show up at the beginning, right? And to acknowledge and say, hey, this is not going to go in a linear way, right? We're all technical people, lots of engineers or sales or whatever. We all have all of our technical expertise and we expect improvement to look a certain way based on our technical background. We look like, oh, it's gonna, we're going to hit this goal. We're going to increase the objective. We're going to move these numbers. And that works sometimes, on the technical parts of the business, it never works that way culturally. But that's it's also easier to communicate in some cultures. Yes. Right? If I'm an engineering firm, it's easier yep. for me to stand up and talk about those things, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Well, sometimes, sometimes engineers are, you know, we could talk about the accountability dial, which is one of the, or the feedback tool that we teach. One of the reasons why it resonates so much with technical people is it's a process, right? And all this stuff around coaching and feedback, it can feel really squishy. They can feel really ambiguous. So a lot for, for technical folks, you got to help them with tooling and skill sets that shows them how do they go from point A to point B? What does that look like? What does good look like? How do I know if I'm doing it right? How do I know if I'm winning? But you absolutely, you got to know your environment. And to your point, you know, you have to, you know, I think probably Netflix is probably the best example that we have in the sort of larger consciousness around this of being willing to say, hey, I want to create a culture where you're going to be here for as long as that makes sense, right? For as long as you're excelling, for as long as your needs and wants and wanting to make a difference matches with what the team and the organization needs. And at some point that might not be the case and that's okay. We can have that conversation and it can still be positive and it can still be human and we can agree and say, Hey, look, you know, that time has come where we got to move on. How do we support you into the next thing? And, you know, organizations, you know, we get so focused on the sort of problem people in front of us that we forget that when we're dealing with those problem people, everybody else is watching. They're watching, how do you deal with that person? How do you exit that person? Do you do it in a humane way? Did you give them feedback? Did you give them those development opportunities? Because I'm looking at that circumstance and I'm making future decisions about, you know, how safe is this place? How much do I want to invest? How much do I want to engage? We get a lot of tunnel vision when we're thinking about these things. Well, yeah, and think, you know, if I'm somebody who's, let's say, really creative and I'm willing to go the extra mile and Maybe I, you know, I, I can bring the best out in people around me, but I look at somebody who maybe they're a good performer technically, right, with whatever their project stuff is, but relationally, they're allowed to throw hand grenades into the mix or yep. they're really likable. And so I actually accept a lower work product. Both of those happen. And then yep. I'm saying like, well, why would I bust my back when this is not a meritocracy? You know, that's such a good point to pull out of that little bomb, value bomb right there is that 
when you have somebody who's that low performer, the message that that's sending to your high performers is probably yeah. just as damaging or more damaging than things that we're doing. And think about it. I always kind of marvel sometimes. All, a lot of our policies and procedures, especially HR, they're written for that bottom 20%. That's right. They're not written for our top 30 or 40% who are making this place, you know, do amazing things. So what if we could just eliminate that bottom 20% <laughs> and write policies and procedures that just free everybody up to do their best? That would be awesome. Well, and the tricky thing is, there's a lot of tricky things in there, but what often happens is people come to rely on some of those high performers and usually a small group of those high performers to get the difficult things done. And then they complain, not wrongly, but they complain about the way those people get those things done. And that's a legitimate complaint, but you have to create a culture. We're all committed to doing both. We're committed to performing at a high level and we're committed to performing at that high level with other people, right? Where we're actually going to work on those relationships. And I can't tell you how many times, I mean, basically every time we start with a new client and they, you know, we, we say, well, what's the problem in the organization? Well, people don't know how to talk to each other, right? Well, mm -hmm. how can you possibly perform at a high level? If you, you know, one of my clients gives this great example, and I believe it's at the Top Gun Academy. Maybe it's the Blue Angels. I'm probably mixing these up. But every time they do a test flight, they come out, or actually a live flight, they come out and they sit around the room and they debrief. And everybody goes around and says, hey, here's what happened for me. Here's what I missed. You know, and they have a conversation. Here's what I think we could do differently next time. And they will tell you that the reason why they're able to perform at such a high level is conversations. Right? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I, we, I don't know if you, we, you know, I forgot yeah. to tell you, Jonathan. So I was in that environment in the Navy as a fighter pilot. Oh. Hmm. And in those debriefs, there is no rank. And we mm -hmm. used to talk about good, bad, and others. That's what we called it, good, bad, others. So what <laughs> did Jonathan do well? What did you mess up on? And people are candid and you're frank. And we all know there's a – and I was talking to a good friend of mine. He was 27 years in the Navy SEAL teams. So they do the exact same thing. Because, mm -hmm. A, our lives depend on each other. But think about the mission of your company. What if you were so tied into what you were doing? It was really important to you. But there was this spirit, this culture of excellence. But we also knew that everybody was coming from a place to help us be our best. Yeah. Right? It was a place. Yeah, and that's it was coming from, even though some of it was hard to hear, it was, and some of it was, honestly, when you know you screwed up, you know, you know you were going to get called out. And guess what? We were all going to take that, though, and look at it from this perspective. What are some things that, let's say, my call sign was Rammer. What I do well? And then what in that, digging in deep, what do I need to learn? And from that learning, what do I need to go do? Hey, John, you need to go practice on this. You need to go spend some one-on-one -on -one time with this guy who's really good at it so you can be better. You need to go study this. And then we can talk about how to apply that whatever it happens to be, procedure, tactic, you know, when we're airborne. You know what it was? It was a culture of constant improvement. What was what behind, I think, the success of that debrief model. And the thing that what's implied in there, and, you know, there was a culture that was created there, but there's something implied in there that we rarely, if ever, teach. And I'm working on an ebook about this right now, is we don't really work with people on how to receive feedback, right? At best... We talk about how to give feedback and usually we don't mm. teach them very well, but we don't talk about how to receive feedback. And so what happens as a result, there's a sort of enemies in this equation. We're like, why does that all sounds good? Why doesn't that happen? One of them is that we don't teach people how to receive feedback. And so, as you said before, what do we, we tolerate is what we're training, right? And so we tolerate the fact that people get feedback and what do they do? They blame the other person. They blame the person who gave them the feedback or they blame the system, or they blame the culture, or they blame somebody else, or they play victim in some way, right? So that's our training. Our training right now, the default well, wait, is- what is the, Jonathan, what do you think feedback, the reason be, people be do that is? So let's say you give me feedback and it's something either I disagree with, or it's something that I think is out of sync with how I see myself. What is that, that wall that we put up that allows us not to take that in and process it and say, you know what? Whether I agree with it or not, this is how Jonathan perceived me or experienced me in that situation. Get ready to jump off the deep end. Let's so the reason, 
the reason why is that when you receive feedback about something meaningful, right? When you receive feedback, if you're going to let that feedback in, it impacts your perception of self. It hits you in a raw place. And so it takes a mature or maturing human being to say, ouch, that hurts a little bit, but it's in the service of my own growth. And I'm going to put aside the messenger for me. I don't, maybe I don't like the way that they said it, or maybe I think there's some facts that they maybe are misinterpreting a little bit, but, but the essence of the feedback that they're giving me, I'm going to internalize that. And the reason why we don't do that is because it's a confrontation with self. And we're not good at that in the Western world. We're not good at maybe any world. We're not good at that confrontation with self. We don't practice it, right? We don't train for it. We have very few examples of people who've given us feedback, mentors, coaches. Most people have very few examples when they draw on their own history where people delivered that feedback in a way that was actually receivable. Mm. It's really in a tough spot. And then I would add another sort of degree of difficulty to the equation. So one is this confronts our perception of self, right? We all say, you know, there's a lot of happy talk about, you know, growth and, you know, we're all, you know, blah, blah, blah. But growth is uncomfortable. You know, one of the things that I wrote in Good Authority, which I get retweets all the time and people, is I said, you don't get to grow and look good at the same time. It's uncomfortable, right? You're changing who you are. If that feedback is actually yeah, Hold on, I, 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 you don't yeah. get to grow and look good at the same time. That's right. Okay. I, I just wanted to reinforce that because that is spot on. You know, we like to, it's like, looks like on a glossy magazine cover of somebody like meditating on a hillside who looks like that's not how growth happens. Like that's a nice picture, but that's not how growth. It's uncomfortable, right? It's like, you know, perception, self images that we've held about ourselves for years, decades, maybe since we were four years old, we thought we were a kind person. And it turns out we're actually passive aggressive. Like those are difficult confrontations with self. The other thing that is really important now, and, you know, Cal Newport, who you're probably familiar with from Deep Work, he's guy, I've been listening to him a little bit recently, and, and I think he's spot on about this. Is, he doesn't talk about it in exactly these ways, but the phenomenon is connected, is that we, our world and the way we have designed our work environments right now is we're so in digital, transactional, back and forth messaging, email, Slack, Teams, we're in these bite-sized, not unimportant, but less than humanly meaningful conversations all the time. We are doing so much of that all the time that shifting gears to having and receiving meaningful feedback is so far away from the normal mode of communication in the modern team and and in the modern work environment that it makes it even more difficult to do. Not any less impactful, not any less meaningful, but when you spend your days in these micro communications it's hard to have a macro conversation. And so that's another part of the reason why that's so difficult right now. Have you seen this transition to a remote workforce make that even harder? Yeah. And one of the things that you said early on, we saw the same thing. So when we, you know, early 2020, right, right before all lockdowns and all that stuff started to happen, you know, we were doing most of our stuff in person, right? And same topic, same content. And, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen when everything started shutting down, but literally every single one of our clients called us up and said, hey, you know, we can't do those things in person. We send everybody home, but we need help. We need coaching. Like, we're really struggling. We don't know how to have these conversations. We didn't know how to have them before. Now it's like we ripped the cover off, right? And so, you know, I think there's a kind of a mixed or silver lining that we saw with COVID, which is the need was exposed. The need was there before. People have been talking about the need for decades, a lot in the last 10 years, but for decades. But the need was exposed to a whole nother level to an unignorable state on modern teams. And so people started investing more, doing the things that people like us have been telling them to do for a long time. They started doing that. But the other thing that happened was, or what I saw happen was by necessity, people became more open to coaching and developing because they didn't have a choice. Because people were coming into their one-on-ones, people were coming onto their teams with problems, big problems, kids at school, lockdowns, political strife, social unrest, all these things were happening and managers were forced to deal with it. You couldn't not deal with it as a manager in March, April, you know, last year up until today. You had to be able to talk about it in some way. 
And so we created this forcing function, what COVID did, life did, the world did, where managers and leaders had to become more like coaches, more like facilitators than they ever did before. Now, are they doing it well? Mostly not, right? But the function that people have been talking about, people like me, people like you have been saying for years, hey, you got to be more like a coach. You got to be more like a facilitator. It's more about your mindset. It's more about holding space. You have to do that now. You can't not do that. So now how do you do it well, I think is the task that's ahead of us. Well, yeah. And you know, you have a fascinating tool and concept that you teach around the accountability dial. I'd love for you to share about that. I know you really go in depth in the book, but I I think it's something that could really help people. Yeah. So what I found as a leader myself is that I, I saw what I saw, right? I had my observations about people and what I think was self-limiting or what I think they could have done better or behaviors that I didn't like or performance that wasn't good. I could see those things, like everybody who's listening to this podcast. We could all see those things. But what I didn't know how to do, I didn't know how to start a conversation with somebody in a way that wasn't threatening. Even if I thought Mm -hmm. I wasn't being threatening, the fact that I was the boss, whether I was the CEO or a senior manager, it increased the threat response, even if I tried not to. And I didn't know how to go, I didn't know how to get around it. So I was having conversations with people. My feedback may have been accurate. The things that I was seeing, I may have, that may have been perceptive, but I was coming in hot to those conversations from their perspective, not from mine, but from their perspective. My feedback was too intense, it was too much, and it was too late. And so I created the accountability dial that came out of a bunch of coaching conversations where I said, hey, there's got to be a way, like almost like a volume knob where we can start at one, right? We can start that conversation with what we call the mention. And then we can raise the volume just a little bit to stage two, what we call the invitation. And then if that doesn't work, we can raise the volume just a little bit to stage three, the conversation, and then the boundary and the limit. So we created this architecture of a productive accountability ownership conversation the primary thing that we teach and coach leaders, executives, first-time managers, is how to know where you are so you can start early in the process that you can make a mention. Hey, I noticed this thing. I didn't know what to make of it. I'm not making a grand conclusion or theory of the universe about it, but I've observed this and I think it's worth reflecting on. And what we've found is that's a game changer for cultures, for leadership, and to move really some of the oldest problems on a team in the organization is if you can teach managers where they are in that conversation and how to have those conversations in a humane way, in a way that's psychologically safe without ever having to talk about psychological safety because it's an insider baseball. You don't need to talk about that. You don't need to talk about authenticity. You don't need to talk about vulnerability. You don't need to talk about any of those things. All you need to do is to have conversations with an architecture that actually works for human beings. And that's what the accountability that was all about. Yeah, and what's, what's the first step? Let's say that I'm somebody that wants to give feedback to somebody else and it's uncomfortable. So here's an example. Let's just say I'm working in an organization and my boss can be, they're a driver, right? They're very transactionally oriented. It's all about getting the work done and their style is just, I just feel like I'm suffocating almost under their leadership Mm -hmm. and I've been putting up with it, right? Cause Mm -hmm. I, you know, I want to do good work. And I've maybe tried to have this conversation a few times and it's, it's really never gone well. Maybe people can relate mm. to that, right? Some of those folks that, yeah. right? How would I start a conversation? If I'm that person and I want to go to my boss and share some feedback to make our working relationship better, where do I start there, Jonathan? So the place to start when you're, if you're somebody more senior, right, than you, right, who has more power in the organization and maybe you've tried those conversations, you do have to find the right moment, right? So some people are good at this intuitively or instinctively, but you don't just, you know, blast down the door and say, hey, I've got feedback for you, right? That's probably not going to go well. (laughs) But, you know, you find a moment, right? You find a moment in a conversation to say, hey, you know, there's been some things that have been on my mind and I know how busy you are, but I'm just trying to find like, I'd love to get 15 minutes where we could just talk more openly. There's some things I've been on, on on my mind that I wanted to try to share with you again. When's a good time to do that? Right. And then probably nine times out of 10, they're going to be like, you know what, actually, like right now, let's do it right now. But you've put their mind into a different state by saying, hey, I want to stretch out a little bit. This is something that's maybe not so easy to talk about. Right. Rather than just blasting away and giving the feedback. So that would be the first step. And, you know, you're the person that you're dealing with. Like, when do you feel like they're a little bit more receptive 
to do that, right? So you got to know your audience a little bit. And then the key is really just coming from your own experience, right? So a mention, when we talk about step one in the accountability right. is exactly that, right? It's just, hey, you know, I feel like I've, I've maybe tried to approach this topic with you in the past, and, and I don't know if I articulated it well or not, whatever the reason, I'm still kind of sitting with this feeling like I'm struggling with how to kind of keep up our working relationship. I know, you know, you're really driving things and you're really focused on these goals and these objectives. And I find myself struggling with, you know, whatever it is, how to prioritize the things that are in my inbox or, you know, what are the most important things? And I'm really struggling with that and I could use your help, right? Like, first of all, so there's two results. Either you have a leader who's going to be receptive to that conversation or you should be looking for a new job. There's only two options there, right? Like either you work for somebody who's willing to engage with you on some minimal level. Now, are they going to handle that first conversation perfectly? Probably not. But if you can't get any openness, any willingness, not only should you be looking for a job, you probably already are. You probably already are disengaged on one form or another. But that's what a mention looks like is saying, hey, there's this thing that's on my mind. And we, maybe we've talked about it before, but I don't feel like I've ever, we've ever really talked about it. And I want to try to do that today. That's a mention. Well, you know, here's a couple of things I'm pulling out of that, right? There's an element of humility, you know, like, Hey, Jonathan, yes. I could even say, right. You know, Hey, this could be me, but you know how we've interacted. This is how I'm feeling, which is making it more challenging for me. I think to maybe meet your expectations, there's kind of a grace in there, right? You're showing up with almost not a confront. I think part of it is how you show up, not to have a confrontation, but to actually make the working environment and the relationship better. And then you're asking for help towards some of the things of your job that you know are also going to be important to that other person. Is that a, a good summary or is there, did I miss something? No, that's it. And the thing, you know, I'm going to use an, another counterexample. Stanford did an amazing research project about will apply, you know, from women who are in powerful positions and how they can, you know, express their opinions. And they found this really interesting thing that goes to this point is that when women gave their opinions in a meeting, right, they just said their opinion versus if they said, hey, everybody, I want to take a little bit of a risk here and I want to share something. Just that little preamble the perception that men had, and this is a men's problem, not women's problem, let's be clear about that, but it is the reality. The perception that people had, mostly men, was that the woman who just gave their opinion was perceived as aggressive or confrontational. And the woman who said, I just want to take a risk here, I want to share something, was not perceived as aggressive or confrontational, like by a huge margin, right? And so that's a version of what we're talking about here by saying, hey, you know, I don't, I don't really know why this is the case. I'm not laying blame. I'm not trying to like hammer you over the head with this piece of information, but there's something that isn't working for me and I want to talk about it. And that grace, that humility, that willingness to say, hey, I don't know what the cause is. You know that they're busy. They've got a million things on their plate, but that's something that is often lost, right? Is that humility. And it's also true with feedback more broadly is that we are expert as humans. We are so good at seeing what we see. And we are so bad at assuming that we know why we see what we see. We're so bad at maintaining curiosity mindset that says, here's what I see. Why is it happening? I don't know. I'm gonna ask some questions. I'm gonna see if I can, we're not good at that. Again, we don't train it. We don't have a lot of good role models for it. And it makes an enormous difference in our lives, in our families, with our relationships, to ask some questions and actually listen to the answer and let it change your point of view. Yeah, when I hear you say that, ask questions, it speaks to me of showing up from a place of curiosity versus judgment. Because I've worked with some really difficult bosses and I've had to have some of these conversations. Some I did well and some I didn't handle well. What I realized over time is almost always there was a reason that certain people show up the way that's really kind of sticking in my craw. And when I kind of sought to understand, you know, what was going on or what might be behind them doing that, I realized when I was in, as a new manager, they kind of took a bet on me. I was really new to the organization, got promoted quickly, and I got assigned to this guy 
And he'd had a new manager in the past that had really made some bad decisions and embarrassed him and affected mm-hmm. his career with the senior, this is at a Fortune 100 company, with the senior management. Mm-hmm. And he took all the flack. Mm-hmm. And right, mm-hmm. so he was approaching the situation very guarded and was very slow to build trust. And when mm-hmm. I kind of understood some of the dynamics that were behind how this guy was showing up, it helped me. It didn't make the how he was showing up any different, honestly, but it helped me show up in a much better place, knowing what was sometimes even behind it. But I did choose over after about three years that you know what, like you said before, that this is not the place for me long-term. I made the best of a bad situation, but also came to that. Yeah. I tried as hard as I could. And I realized that, you know what, this, I need to move on. Maybe one of your listeners will start this company, but one of the things that I you know, thought to myself early on, and you know, this, it would be a difficult business to build, but to what you're talking about, you know, it would not be a mistake to build an entire business around, you know, what would you do as a consultant? Well, I'm going to come in and I'm going to work with everybody in your organization, especially the senior leaders on past workplace trauma and boss trauma. And I'm going to help them work through the baggage that they're carrying from the other bosses who treated them poorly or other people in their life who, who used their authority badly because it's what's the predominant thing that's coloring their experience. Now, you're not going to get a lot of takers <laughs> for, for that, but that doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do, right? And that's, you know, we carry, we all do from whether it's bad bosses or abusive parents or coaches, mentors, you know, other figures in our lives, teachers, everybody carries negative experiences from people who didn't use their authority in a humane way. And we carry those through and it informs our behavior. And we don't do anything in organizations to try to deal with that, right? We do a little bit of that in maybe therapy and spiritual and religion. Like we do a little bit of that maybe in some other areas of our life. But in the workplace, we ignore it entirely. And we think, well, we're just gonna create a high performance culture. Oh, really? Without dealing with how people relate with authority, and how they listen to authority and act on authority with, through their filters that they learned when they were five years old, like good luck. So there's a, what I wanna to say to, to kind of summarize is our perception of what a high performance team is like is so skewed to the downside. Very few people have ever worked on what is really a high performance team. And most people would be blown away to actually experience what a high performance team looks like. Cause you'd have five people on that team and it looks like they're doing the work of 50. They're just working at their full potential. What we're used to is a team of hundred people that does the work of 10. That's the norm. So here's a thought, right? And I love the subtitle of your book, become that leader your team's waiting for. What if you were the leader that showed up and took a sincere interest, not only in each individual in their unique value and got to know them and even ask them what their experiences have been coming in here. You know, if it's a woman, hey, have you worked in, a, in an environment where you just felt like it's a good old boys club and you could just never break in and that's why you left? I have a client yeah. right now that, and this is not perception. It, for her situation, that was the absolute reality. So, you know, she's guarded with how she sh- she's not showing up as her authentic self because she feels like right. she has to show up as this person, a different person in order to achieve success. And, and I think that when we have to like split ourselves at work to achieve what we think is success, that's stressful. Yes. Even top performers, right? They break down. And I think that's what we saw a lot. We're still seeing, you know, through COVID is people breaking down. Some of the smartest, most brilliant, most high achieving people I've ever met in my life who would never be someone who would be like, I'm tired. People are tired. People are exhausted. People have been through the ringer for the last 18 months on a bunch of levels. And it's our job as leaders, whether whatever it says in your title, the people who are in your care, it's your job to ask those questions and to understand them a little bit better. You don't have to be their therapist. You don't have to be their minister. You don't have to be their parent. You don't have to be their marriage counselor, but you've got to be more human. And if you do that, you'll get all the things that you're looking for. I so agree. So the book is Good Authority. It's on Amazon. And also everybody out there, uh, Jonathan did something really cool just for you as listeners. 
The company is Refound, R-E-F-O-U-N-D. So if you guys go to refound.com forward slash eternal leadership, there's an incredible guide on how to have one-on-one meetings with people, like a whole framework on how to sit down with those individuals, especially your direct reports, and really have some conversations that are going to help you to get to know them, build that trust, but in a way that's going to pull some things out to really not only allow you to serve them, but in addition to that, the team and the entire organization. And the uh, there's some links on there for the accountability dial. What's the other best ways for people to get in touch with you, Jonathan? You could go to our website, just the main website at refound.com, or just send us an email, hello at refound.com. You'll get a response from a human being, and uh, you can let them know you listened to this conversation. If you had any questions or things you wanted me to follow up about, I'd be happy to do that. Love to. And, you know, just as we wrap up, here's what I'm seeing. 2020 was the year of COVID and the pandemic. What I am seeing now is the after effect of that in the, I think, the mental health in the state of people. Think of all of your employees out there right now. I'll guarantee you they've been affected. There's either been a death in the family. They know a friend that's been affected financially. They're still concerned. There's a lot of anxiety. And I think right now how we're showing up as a human, like you said, Jonathan, in the, that's what people are going to remember. That's what people are going to be attracted to. That's going to allow us to help other people to emerge from this stronger and better. And I just love your kind of final thoughts here as we land the plane. Mm. Yeah, that's really the task of modern leadership, modern people leadership. When we go into organizations, like we say, look, there's no managers anymore. They're people leaders. And sometimes those people leaders are junior people leaders, and sometimes they're C-suite people leaders. But we're people leaders, right? And how we show up for each other as human beings with everything else that's going on in our world, that's the task ahead of us. And it's the you know, the last thing I would say, you know, for me, for anyone else who's sort of coming at this, you know, either later in their career or feeling like, you know, this is kind of new skill territory, I will offer that for me, it's the most rewarding work Mm -hmm. that I've ever done as being able to be that person for others and to be of service and then to help other people grow is more rewarding than any individual accomplishment I've ever had. Hey, and I want to ask you one final question because, you, you know, a lot of people do perceive coaching and this kind of work as the soft skills. I would argue based on all of my experience that this is actually foundational and is the hard skills. Yeah, I mean, you've worked with so many, you know, medium to very large companies. When people understand this approach to leadership and you're focusing on the value of humans in this area, What have you seen on their actual business results, the measurable things that Mm. people like business school has taught us to focus on? Yeah. I mean, so we, every project that we do, we attach it to business metrics. So for example, on one project, the company was, that was struggling with attrition. They decreased attrition by 42% in a year, 42%. Probably saved them millions Uh, of dollars, right? Millions, millions. Another company, they took their break-even point down by 9% by through cost controls, right? Because people were having more accountability conversations, paying more attention, you know, things like that. Sometimes it's more ambiguous, right? Sometimes it's more like I've had leaders say, you know, I'm not exactly sure which metric it's attached to. Our business is doing great, but we're more resilient, especially like we're having the conversations that we didn't used to be able to have. So those are, you know, some kind of things. We're working on a project. We're kicking off a project right now, which is near and dear to my heart, that had for a very large business that has a diversity and inclusion component where this company wants to become an employer of choice. And they've seen through data and looking back, hey, we've got a problem. We have not been, not necessarily through bad intentions, but we're not doing right by people of color with you know, onboarding, hiring, training, whatever. So our project is attached to that. So there's really, you know, I wouldn't say there's an infinite list of things, but there's a pretty long list of metrics you can attach it to. And it's rarely one-to-one, but you don't have to look that hard to find the connection between having a better culture and creating better results. Yeah. Well, thank you for that perspective. I, I think if, this is one of the most important skills for us to focus on regardless of where the, and, you know, I guess something just to exhort, you know, these, the older folks in the workplace, 
you know, if we change our style and really focus on this opportunity that we have to mentor and coach these young leaders coming into an organization versus maybe judging them or being annoyed by them, which I see, I think this generation right now, the Ys and the Zs, have the opportunity to be the greatest generation ever or Hmm. the opposite of that. And I Hmm. think what that says is for, you know, folks like, you know, leaders out there in business, in ministry, government, politics, you know, uh, religion, wherever, arts and entertainment, wherever you happen to be, this unbelievable, I think, legacy for leadership that we have a chance to leave Hmm. is epic. And and I love to see leaders that actually see it from that perspective and embrace it and make those changes and be that person that people look back long after you're gone and go, you know what, because I got to work with Jonathan because he took that time with me and helped me see some things in myself or believe in myself more or fully express myself and and work with confidence. That is when everything changed. And I'd love for everybody here out there listening you know, to be that person for at least one other person at some point. That, mm. that right there would, we could change this culture of our country and our politicians. I think our politicians are a reflection of the electorate. And you know what? We change our hearts. We change how we work with people. And we're going to see a lot of changes and things, I think, that are very important to a lot of us. Couldn't agree more. All right. Thank you, Jonathan. That's awesome. Guys, go check out refound.com. Read this book, and here's a suggestion for you. I love every team I work with, and Jonathan, I'm going to be bringing this in. I have my teams that I'm working with reading a book, and then they're discussing it Mm -hmm. as part of their meetings. It is a phenomenal way, especially if you're really uncomfortable with some of the stuff, to introduce concepts of feedback and and how to have one-on-one meetings and how to lead a little bit differently because – what you're doing is you're, uh, you bring in stuff from the book and then you all discuss it. And then you say, hey, how do we apply it? Yep. And next week, hey, what did we do with it? And just a short discussion, mm-hmm. but our, my team is constantly reading a book every month. And mm-hmm. uh, so there's one way if you're wondering like, hey, where do I start? Grab a book like this yep. and say, hey, folks, I bought a copy for everybody. We're going to read just mm-hmm. 10 pages a day, you know, low impact, and we're going to mm-hmm. discuss it every week. And then each week, assign somebody on the team to lead the discussion. Don't, it was the boss. Don't just do yep. it yourself. But there's one idea for you. Maybe you can take away to take everything that you've heard. You're like, oh, my gosh, how do, how do I do this? Well, and guess what? If you're not the person in control, go to your boss and say, I think this book could really transform how we're just operating as a team. Here's an idea. What if we all read this together? I think it's going to help you make differentiate yourself as a leader in the team. Put it in terms of W-I-I-F-M, everybody's favorite station. Are you familiar with that one, Jonathan? What's in it for me? Oh. Oh. <laughs> so, all right, everybody. That's awesome. Thank you, Jonathan. Keep up the good work, and I look forward to talking to you again. Likewise. Thanks, John.